lessons that are learned at life's bitter pools. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity of ministry this morning. Thank you for the privilege to stand one more time in this sacred place and deliver the word of the Lord. I ask you, O Lord, to help me, give me clarity, give me recollection and good memory so that I can remember the things that you said to me in the prayer closet, that I may openly declare the word of the Lord. Help me and touch me and enable me physically and spiritually as well in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. amen. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15, we'll read verses 22 through 27. The people of God began as a family. Family in a garden of Eden, the initial sin, original sin, separated ourselves and God, and God said, you can no longer stay in my presence. So there had to be an exodus. So the people of first family were driven out of the presence of the Lord. All bad things had happened in that uh, garden. It had happened in their home and their family. And uh, after they were driven out, then we had a murder and the very first, a homicide in the very first family. Boy, we got off to a bad start, didn't we? Had a brother hating another brother, rose up against his brother and slew him. God came down and said to Cain, where is Abel thy brother? He said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? God said, what have you done? For the voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. Now art thou cursed, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. And a fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. And the 13th verse of that chapter says, And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, thou hast driven me out this day, and from thy face shall I be hid. And it shall come to pass that everyone who findeth me shall slay me. And God set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should slay him. Boy, what a terrible start we got off to. Well, the people of God, as you know, the, the family grew and, and uh, became a nation. A nation while in captivity. In fact, they were in captivity to the Egyptians for 400 years and were slaves and bondsmen and built pyramids and laid brick and the terrible uh, tasks that were laid upon them were, were so grievous. But there came a day when God sent a, a deliverer and God sent an emancipator, a man who is a type of the Lord Jesus in the Old Testament. Uh, we call those euphemisms. There are theological expressions in the Old Testament that remind us of New Testament principles and that's the terminology that's used in, in theology for those kind of events. When God sent Moses, Moses had been a fugitive for 40 years. He was living on the backside of Midian, tending sheep for his father-in-law. And uh, the Bible said one day the Lord spoke to him out of a burning bush. Now, it wasn't uncommon to see burning bushes in the desert. It is uncommon to see one that burns but never burns up. And when he saw that the, the bush was not consumed, the Bible said he turned aside. And the Lord spoke to him, said, you're standing on holy ground. Take your shoes off. And then the Lord revealed to him the task that was before him. And he said to him, he said, I want you to go to Egypt, and I want you to tell Pharaoh, who was Xerxes I, tell him I want you to let my 
people go. Let my people go. And the Bible said Moses was very reluctant. Number one, he said, I got a speech impediment and I don't talk plain. And I, I'm not a, a very good orator nor a rhetor. Isn't that a pretty word, rhetor? It's a writer and they talk it rhetoric and rhetorical. And you get the picture. Anyway, he said, I'm not good at that. And God said, well, I'll send Aaron with you and let Aaron go with you. And he said, well, that's not hardly good enough because I refuse to go unless you go with me. Except you go with me, I will not go, he said. Wow, that's pretty smart on his part because if you got God on your side, whoo, praise God, you're going the right foot to begin with. And uh, he said, God, I will not go and deliver any message to anybody unless you tell me that you will go. And God said, I will go with you. I will go with you. I will go with you. And, and Moses then, then said, then show me your glory. Show me your glory. Got the great sermon that Brother Hughes preached so many years ago. Uh, show me thy glory. Show me. That needs to be the prayer of the church today. For the Lord to show us his glory. To show this culture his glory. Show this world his glory. Show his people his glory. Everyone needs to behold the glory of the Lord. The Bible said the Lord is full of gloriousness. He is glorious in all of his ways, the Bible says. And when we behold his glory, we behold his supernatural sovereignty, then worship is automatically the result in the lives and hearts of his people. We automatically bow in his presence. It was, you would think, would be a very simple thing to go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. But the Bible said it was not in the heart of Pharaoh to let the people of God go. Their, their reason for wanting to be let go, have you ever read, got this in your reading of that? It said that we may go and worship. We want to leave Egypt and we want to go into the desert so we can worship. We want to worship. I want to tell you, every time somebody wants to worship, God's on your side. Every time somebody wants to worship, I want to tell you, God wants to get into the arrangements and God wants to be a part of the game plan. If your goal is to worship, then God says, well, let's make a way. Then let's make a way. And the Bible said that Pharaoh finally said, I'll, I'll let them go under this concern, under that condition, and under this consequence. I'll do it if, if this and that and that. But finally, the Bible tells us, and you know the plagues, and you know all about all the, the, the things that God said. And that was all behind an effort on the part of God to be known. Pharaoh said, I don't know. He told Moses when Moses said, God said for me to come and tell you, let my people go. And he said, I don't know this God you're talking about. I don't know the God of Israel. I don't know the God of the Hebrews. I don't, I don't know this God. And so Moses went back and said, God, he says he don't know you. He doesn't have a, a resume on you. There's not one on file. Well, there's not one on file because you can't define him. There's no way you can uh, write a description of him because you can't describe him. There's no words, no language, no pensmanship that can author any instrument that can perceive or comprehend our God. Amen. No wonder he didn't know him. But God said, Moses, you go back that Pharaoh may know that I am God. You see, God wants you to know him. 
God wants this world to know him. God wants every human being to know him. Every culture, every language, every tongue, he wants everybody to know him. He really does. In fact, that's the heartbeat of God that you'll get to know him. Job said, acquaint now thyself with God. You need to get acquainted with God if you don't know him. Amen. Amen. We know all about the Red Sea and the people of God that had been delivered and had been set free and, and had made it over the Red Sea. And, and now we're at the event of, of, of Miriam and her timbrel and her singing and her dancing. Amen. You know, Pentecostals are about the only ones that still dance anymore and they don't do it much. I was reading some of that, that literature this, this morning of, of my ancestors and talking about some letters that they had written about a holy dance that they said that the Lord put on me at service last night. That the Lord put on me a holy dance. Now I know that's peculiar to your ears. That, 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 but Pentecostals used to do that kind of thing. Yeah, they sure did. But uh, at any rate, uh, I, I, I kind of still dance a little bit myself every now and then, praise the Lord. You'll have to excuse me if you think it's uh, wrong to do that. But I, I just think that when the Bible said they had a great victory and God delivered them and she sang, He hath delivered us from the horse and the rider and his chariots hath he sunk to the bottom of the sea. And he has destroyed the enemies, destroyed our enemies, and drowned them all in the midst of the sea. Praise God. Hey, I want to tell you something. If I could, if I could sing some song that you could get rid of every enemy that you've got, if I could write some music that would cause you to do away with every enemy, every obstacle that's in your way, whatever was binding you is destroyed and took away. Well, my Lord, I think you ought to dance a little bit about it. Even a kid knows to dance when they get good news, don't they? Praise the Lord. Well, I'd like to tell you that all the people of God had, had perfect uh, harmony with God's plan. And all, but, man, they'd been in bondage 400 years. They didn't, excuse me, they didn't know nothing. They just didn't know nothing. They didn't know how to worship. They didn't know how to praise. They didn't know how to live. They didn't know how to, to do any of those things that you know to do because you've been around it a long time. They'd never been around. They'd never seen it. Never seen All their life, all they had ever been was a slave. All they'd ever been was a, a bond servant, somebody to work and serve a, a cruel taskmaster. That's the only life they ever knew. And suddenly, they're being told these things by, by the people of God. Well, let's read it in Exodus chapter 15, 22. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. Now, actually, they're about three days from crossing over. All right? About three days from actually crossing over the Red Sea. And he brought them from the Red Sea, and they went out to the wilderness of Shur. Ooh, that's a strange word for a wilderness, isn't it? Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink of the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore the name of that place was actually called Marah, which means bitter. And a lot of God's people camped out at that, that spring. Did you know that? Been there a long time. And the people murmured against Moses. Most folks who were camped out at bitterness they usually murmur against leadership. 
murmured against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried unto the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, which when he had cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet. Now, there's a lot of good preaching to do right there because there was a blessed Savior who was nailed to a tree. And when you insert that into your bitterness, it will be made sweet. And there's not another tree like that tree. It's one of a kind. Amen. Never been one before it. Never will be another one after it. There'll never be another Calvary. There'll never be another crucifixion for the sins of the whole world. But I want to tell you once and for all, if you insert the tree of Calvary into the pool of bitterness, you'll find out those waters will become sweet. Hallelujah. Anybody in this house ever had God to sweeten up bitter waters? Anybody ever had God's touch and God's mercy and God's grace to sweeten the water where it was palatable, where you couldn't stand it before, but you love it now? Oh, boy, that's good preaching right there. They cried unto the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. Not trees, because there's only one like that one. A tree which when he had cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. And there he made for them a statute and an ordinance, a law and a commandment. And there he proved them and said, If thou wilt diligently, if thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, and will do that which is right in his sight, and will give ear to the commandments and keep all of his statutes, then I will put none of these diseases upon thee which I have brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. All of the diseases that I put upon the Egyptians will never be placed upon my people, God said, because I am the Lord who heals. I am the Lord who delivers. I'm, I am the Lord who sweetens. I am the Lord who does miraculous things. And they came to Elam where were 12 wells of water and three score and 10 palm trees, and they encamped there by the waters. Praise God. In other words, God says, I'm taking you to a place where there's plenty to drink and there's plenty of palm trees. There's an oasis. There's shade from the hot sun. There's blessing everywhere you turn where I'm carrying you to. I'm, I'm carrying you to Elam. I'm carrying you to a place where there's palm trees and that means there's dates and that means there's all kind of fruit around. And it said there was how many wells of water? Twelve wells of water, one for every one of those. Yeah, you get it. And three score and ten palm trees. That's 70 palm trees. And they camped there by those waters. Very often learning lessons are bitter experiences, aren't they? Amen. You know, it's it said that experience is the best of teachers. And that's true. You know, I remember when I was a, a little fellow and we had an electric stove. Mom always told us, don't touch that element right there. If you ever touch that, you'll get burned. Well, that's good words and that's good advice. But to an inquisitive little boy, 
uh, there's no lesson to be learned better than stick your finger to that and find out. And you'll never touch it again. It's kind of like the boy in the Christmas story with his tongue. You remember in the flagpole? Don't ever stick your tongue to that flagpole, son. It's frozen and your tongue will, you'll pull some hide off when you get ripped loose from it. Well, I don't believe that. I have to find that out for myself. Some lessons we just have to feel, don't we? They can tell us all they want to. Mom and Daddy can tell you not to run around with hoodlums. But you got to go find out why she don't want you to run around with that kind. Come on, somebody. Life's lessons are usually learned by a bitter pool. Usually there has to be something that hurts associated with learning that lesson so you won't do that again. So you won't do that again. And with God's people, it's the same way. And with all of us, every one of us in this room can recite instances just like what I went through the last few minutes. You've all had those learning experiences. You've all come to those, those pools that when you got there thinking you was going to get a good drink of water, you found out that stuff was awful. Well, for all of our folks that are watching down South Alabama, I'm just going to come right up front and tell you, the water in Tom, Thomasville and Linden is the worst water I have ever put in my mouth. And I preached a revival there when I was one of those young teenage evangelists for Brother Charles Gerald when he pastored Thomasville. I drank Pepsis all week long. Had a kidney stone and a kidney infection from drinking too much Pepsi. But buddy, I'll tell you what, compared to that water, I'll, I'll take the Pepsis. Wow, worst water. Gene Rice, his first church was Linden. And he used to tell me, he said, if you hold your nose just exactly right and you do this two times, three, three times, he went through some formula that was supposed to take the bad taste away. I even tried that. That didn't work. I spewed that stuff as far as I would butter beans. God's people learn their best lessons at those pools of bitter waters. You know, there's three things we need to learn about that. Number one is life is a mixture. I wish I could tell you that every time that anything happens to you, it, it's going to be good. And I wish I could tell you, once you get saved, money's going to hunt you down. Once you get saved, you'll never be sick another day in your life. Once you get saved, you'll never miss a car payment. You'll never have any problem with anything. I wish I could tell you it was like that. But the Bible said the same things that are common to man are common to us also. We're in this world. We may not be of this world, but we're in this world. And the same bad things that happens to other people happen to us because we live in a world that is cursed and we live in a world that is under a, a, a sentence. But I want to tell you something. In all of those challenges and in all of those experiences we are made more than conquerors 
through Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. The difference is I have somebody with me. That's the difference is if you've got somebody with you, that one that said, I'll never leave you, never forsake you, that one that said, I will, I will go with you and I'll strengthen you and I will bear you up. I will, I will call it with my right hand, I will uphold you. Hallelujah. That same God is the one who says that you can't lose with the stuff we use. Amen. If you trust God and you walk by faith and not by sight, and you trust what the Word of God says, and you believe prayer works, then you can say to a mountain, get out of my way and be thrown. Throw yourself in the sea. Is that what we said last week? Just go throw yourself in the sea. Amen. And God says that's possible for his people to live a, a, a life that, that when the, yeah, you'll come through some bitterness, and you'll come to some places in life that it's a bitter pill to swallow. But if you'll learn the lesson, if you'll learn the lesson, you'll be much the smarter for it. The tragedy is you don't ever learn the lesson and you keep taking the class over and over again. If you could ever pass the test, you could quit reliving the experience. Because bitterness, folks, is a cruel, cruel thing. It eats away like a cancer. Bitterness will keep on and on and on until it eventually destroys you. It will keep growing and keep, keep sapping energy and sapping strength until there's none left. Until there's none left. And you'll finally get to the place that you're like that fig tree we preached about last Sunday. It just withers. It just withered up. The Bible calls that past feeling. Did you know that you can get past feeling? You ought to thank God for conviction. I said you ought to thank God for conviction because what that tells you is God is still dealing with your heart and still dealing with your soul. If you never feel conviction and you never feel like the word of the Lord has convicted your heart, then you, there ought to be cause for real alarm and real worry real worry if you never feel convicted conviction is our friend folks it tells us when we need to make some adjustments conviction is god's way it's attached to god's word and it lets us know that there are some things we need to adjust in our walk with god and that's called conviction amen and every one of us ought to say somebody said whoa preacher let me see if i can get the skin back on my shins you ought to say thank god Thank God the Lord sent me a love letter this morning. Let me know he loves me because whom the Lord loves, he chasteneth. If he didn't love you, he would just let you lay there in your bitter mess. But he loves you so much that he challenges you at the point of that. And he comes to confront you through conviction to try to get you rid of that situation so you don't have to go through that again. But he loves you enough that he'll keep trying until you get it right. Until you get it right. The Bible says that the Lord chastens the people that he loves. And it, he gives light to those that walk in darkness. He's a, he's a great God. He's a wonderful saving master. All of Israel had just experienced a great blessing. Isn't it strange how blessings 
and bitterness follow one another. They intermingle. They just had a great blessing of crossing the Red Sea. They just had a wonderful blessing of, of get, coming up on the other side and singing and dancing and re rejoicing. And yet they fall right back into another situation and meeting the bitterness of the pool. Life does have wonderful moments, doesn't it? Wonderful moments. Isn't it wonderful that this ministry couple stood up here and remembers their wedding night, no doubt. I remember my wedding night. It was at Pale City Church of God. Sure was. My dad did the ceremony. And me and Deb Twain became one. I hope we're still one. Sometimes she straightens me out like I'm not, not part of the one anymore. We go back to being two sometimes. Never will forget what my dad said to me, Randy, when we walked out on the front of the church after the wedding. He said, well, how does it feel to be married? And I said, uh, are you supposed to feel some certain way? <laughs> Wrong answer. <laughs> are you supposed to feel some certain way? Like you, you, you know, some people, they look at salvation like that, that, that it's got to happen a certain way. You know, I've heard people testify about being saved for years. Brother, it was like I was out in the middle of a big field and there was this bright light shined down upon me and I, I, like the Apostle Paul, I just fell to my knees and said, Who art thou, Lord? And I got saved right there in that old cotton field. And the old enemy would say to me, Well, you wasn't in a cotton field and you didn't see a bright light, so you must not have got saved. Another one would get up, oh, it was like a quilt that just come down under me and just lifted me up. And the devil would say, you never have had a quilt experience. Did you ever feel like you got lifted up by something? No. You see, if it's a feeling, then brother, you're in trouble. Because life is going to see to it that you don't always feel like it. Amen. Because sometimes in, in life, life can be tough to bear up under some of the things that happen. Sometimes life can take you down a path that's, that's a rough and winding road. Sometimes life can, can be involved and intricated with some things that cause you a lot of trepidation, a lot of fear, a lot of fear. But faithful is he that calleth you. Faithful. You mean this is a faith thing? You mean this is a, a, a walk that you walk with confidence and you walk with faith knowing in whom you have believed and that he is able to keep what you've committed unto him against that day amidst all the mixtures of good and bad that happens to you. One thing remains constant and certain is that the word of the Lord never changes and the love of God never changes and the grace of God never changes and the presence of God never changes. Amen? Through all of life's mixture, 
bag of mixtures, whatever it brings, he is faithful. He is faithful. Second thing, life has a master. Jesus said no man can serve two of them. Every man's got to serve one of them. He said either he will hold on to one and throw the other aside, or he'll hold of that one and throw this one aside, but everybody's got one. You mean the most saintly person in this room has got a master? Yes. And the person that you would call the farthest away from God has got a master. And Jesus said two of them won't abide together. Only one. Come on, somebody. You're acting like that's the first time you ever heard that. Only one. Jesus said, no man can serve two. He'll cleave to one, throw the other one away, or cleave to that one and throw the other one. One's all you get. Who is your master? Come on, sound like you're kind of timid and embarrassed to tell me. Is Jesus your master? Is Jesus the Lord of your life? Is Jesus the one that you've submitted your life to? Is Jesus the one that has ordered your life and ordered the steps in your life? Or is that Jesus? Life can only have one master. And if it's Jesus, then where he leads, you need to follow. Wherever he feeds, you need to be there. Wherever he is communicating, you need to be there. Because if he is Lord of your life and he's the master of your life, then he is the one that will determine what happens at the end of the way. What happens at the end of the way. And that, friends, is most important about life. It's knowing what's going to happen at the end of the way. Amen? When Paul faced that reality, he had this to say, I know, I know my Redeemer. I know my Redeemer. I know that there's going to be a resurrection. I know that there's going to be a, a catching away. I know that there's going to be a, a time when we will all appear before the judgment seat of God. I know these things, and I know that as I am approaching that, that event for my life, I know who the master of my life is, so I know what the end of my life is going to be. Isn't that great? Agabus took his garment and bound himself with it, and he said, the man who owns this garment, he said, that man, I prophesy by the Spirit of the Lord that that man will be beaten and locked in chains and stocks and bonds when he gets to Jerusalem. And the Apostle Paul looked at him and said, Agabus? He said, I'm sure that that's the Spirit of the Lord telling you to tell me that. I'm convinced that's genuine, that's authentic, I know. But let me tell you where I stand in this matter. I am willing not only to be bound, but also to die. Hmm. In fact, he said to the Romans, I'd rather die. He said, if it was left up to me, now I don't share that with them.
I'm not at that point where I'm ready to go today. I'm going to try my best to stay alive all day. Today, I'm not at the point where, next, next. No. But Paul said, for me to die is gain. But for me to live is Christ. And he said, if I did the most profitable thing for you, it would be keep on living. Because as long as I'm living, I'm going to be preaching. I'm going to be doing something for God. So I'm going to be a blessing to you, he said, as long as I live. But he said, I could tell you this, if I had my own, what is it we say here in Alabama? Druthers. Barbara, is that the way we say it? If I could just have my druthers. What in the world is druthers? He said, I would much rather depart. Because he said, for me to depart would be a gain for me. That would be an asset. That would be a blessing to me. But he said, but for me to live is Christ. You know how people who have the master to be the Lord Jesus, that's the way they look at it. They look at life. I remember your mother told me before she passed away, Faith, she said, Brother Irwin, I'm ready to go. said, I'm ready for the Lord to come get me. said, most folks my age have done gone anyway. And said, I'm ready to go. And said, he can just come get me tonight if he wants me. Margie told her daughter the other day, she did this right here, going home. Tracy thought she meant going to the house. She shook her head, not that home, that home. You see, sometimes those bitter pools, they get so tough and they get so bitter that you're willing to say, I'm ready to leave here. I'm ready to leave here. I drove from here last Sunday to Decatur, Alabama and preached the funeral of a man who said that same thing. His daughter went to see him at Summerford Nursing Home down there, 91 years old. You know what he said? He said, Kathy, I, I want to go home. And she said, well, Daddy, you, you can't, can't go home right now. He said, yes, I can. She said, no, you don't understand. He said, no, you're the one that don't understand. I'm not talking about my home over there on Rome Road. I'm talking about that home. That home. That home. Oh, glory to God, to that home. I want to tell you, there comes a time when life's bitter pools gets to be such a, a burden that you're ready to say, hey, praise the Lord. I'm ready to go, Lord. Amen. You can come get me when you're ready. My daddy used to sing a song. Y'all used to sing it too at 17th Street. I remember because I sat on the stage and listened to you. I'm getting ready to leave this world to prepare a mansion. Jesus said, I'll go. If it were not true, I would have told you so. 
just a little while to linger here below. I'm getting ready to leave this world. My daddy would not sing that song that way. He said, son, I'm not getting ready. Don't make a mistake there and say I'm getting ready. I'm not getting ready. I am ready. He'd sing it like this. I am ready to leave this world. I am ready for the gates of pearl. Woo. He personalized it and said, I am ready. Praise God. You believe you can live a life for this master that you can say, I know that I am ready to meet the Lord. I know that should he come or call right now, I am ready to meet him. Praise God, if Jesus is the master of your life and he's Lord of your life, then you can say that with a surety. I am ready. Ready. I am ready to go should the Lord come or call. Praise God. Not only is there a mixture and there's a master, there's a ministry at every bitter pool. A ministry. You see, God uses bitter pools to teach us valuable lessons. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13 through 16, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and the cunning craftiness whereby they lie and wait to deceive but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things. May grow up into him. May grow up into him. Isn't that powerful stuff? Wow. Which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together compacted by that which every joint supplies according to the effectual working in the measure of every part maketh increase of the body under the edifying of itself in love. Brother, when you get to that place where he is master of your life and he ordains the things that are in your life, and you know that he will never put anything on you greater than you can bear. And you know that already passing through his filter is every temptation, every trial, everything that comes, that on the other side of it, you'll come out better, stronger, more experienced, more mature, more able. That the next time that bitterness shows up, then you can take it. And you can walk through it because you're stronger, you're better. Come on, somebody. You're more experienced. And when those kind of things happen, you can praise the Lord in the midst of a bitterness in a pool. Let's do a little bit of Nehemiah before we go, and then I'll let you go, I promise. Come on, Melissa. Not Olivia this morning. It's Melissa this morning. Come on and help me quit. Nehemiah chapter 8, the Bible talks about when the people of God got back from the exilic period, 
when they made it back from Babylon, in other words, and they were able to go back to, to Jerusalem, they read the book of the law of God when they got back. They said, let's make sure that we get started off on the right foot. Let's make sure that we read the law of the Lord. And they gave, listen to it, it said, they read in the book of the law distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. You know, there's a big word for that that I'm doing pretty regular right now. It's called exegetical exposition. Don't you love that word? Exegete means to determine the meaning of. Expositional means interpret. What does that mean to me? What does that say to me? What does that mean to my faith system, my belief system? What does that particular passage, they explained it, they expounded it, Ezra and those with him he first met began to read and expound. And when he got tired, the Bible said they relieved him. In the law of God distinctly, which was the book they read in, it was read plainly and intelligently so as to be heard and understood. This seems to respect that clear and distinct pronunciation of the Hebrew words. Why did they need to learn how to pronounce the words? because they had been 70 years in captivity. They'd been 70 years speaking Babylonian Chaldean. They didn't know how to talk praise talk. They didn't know how to talk religious talk. They didn't know how to talk worship talk. So the rabbis and the scribes and the Levites all explained to them what these terms meant and taught them how to worship the Lord. Boy, that's good stuff. Let me just paraphrase because I know you're getting sleepy. The Bible said, and when the people heard it, the Bible said they all said, Amen, Amen, Amen. And they worshiped and they praised and they danced. Why did they start praising and dancing? Well, when the law was first read, that conviction settled upon them and they all began to cry and they all began to weep because they'd broken it so many times. They all realized that they couldn't keep the law. The more Ezra read and the more Nehemiah expounded, the more they realized we can't live up to that. And next thing you know, they're crying and they're all gloomy and despair and and all of that. And then you've got that verse in chapter 15, verse 6. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen. Now, did you know they've got a law? It's one of what they call the canon. And in the canon, it is in the midrash that when you say Amen, you can't say it quick like, Amen. There's a Jewish law against saying it too quick. How about that, Susan? Don't say, Amen. And it said you got to say it slower, and you've got to say it more with a more, it says, without a feminine voice. You got to say it 
Amen. Amen. Not amen. It can't be a high-pitched, high-tenor voice. You need to hunt you a bass speaker to say amen and pull it out. Amen. <laughs> you didn't know there was laws like that in the Jewish canon, did you? You got to say amen, right? And listen to what else. And when you do it, he said, you got to raise your hands up above your head. And the canon says, and you've got to bow your head down to the ground. So it goes something like this. Amen. So you learned how to say amen at church this morning. Somebody meets you on the street and says, what'd you learn at church yesterday? I say, I learned how to say amen. I found out you, you can't giggle it out. Amen. You got to make it sound like a he-man said, amen. Praise God. He said they lifted up their hands and they bowed their head and they cried, amen. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, before he began to read the book of the law and he addressed himself to God in a short prayer and he built a pulpit. Built a pulpit and climbed up in the pulpit so that he was above the people and was preaching down to the people that were looking up to hear him. Sounds like a church service to me, don't you? Bowed his head and prayed before he preached and then he preached and explained what the word of God said and then they all got up and said, Amen. The Word of God is true. And he said, You need to rejoice and worship because God is going to bring about a time when law-keeping is not the best you can do to serve Him. Because there's coming a time when salvation by grace through faith is going to become the way to please God. There's going to come a time that you don't need to be gloomy and have despair and all of this guilt poured upon you because when God by grace institutes the grace dispensation then you'll be able to dance and you'll be able to shout amen amen and glorify God because you got a better plan of salvation by grace through faith and that makes you want to shout and he said rejoice therefore Jesus says they came back to him and said Lord the 70, when he sent them out, they came back and said, Why, Lord, even devils are subject to us. Man, everywhere we preached in your name, miracles took place and devils went a-running. And Jesus said, Don't rejoice because devils run from you. He said, Rejoice because your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Glory to God. Rejoice because there's a record somewhere that's got your name on it and it says saved by grace. Stand with me, please. So when you go to a pool to get a good drink of water and it's bitter, say, Lord, help me learn the lesson. And two, well, thank God my name's in the book. Thank good God my name's on the list. Amen. Thank God I'm saved. Yes. And thank God my name is on the list. 
Isn't it great that God keeps a record? The Lord knoweth them that are His. And He said, and in that day when I make up my jewels, they shall be mine. The Bible said Jesus is coming as a thief in the night. I told you a lot of times, a thief doesn't break in your house to get your garbage. When he breaks in your house, it's to get the most valuable thing you've got, and that's usually in your jewelry box. So when a thief comes, he comes to get the most valuable thing you got. When Jesus comes as a thief in the night, he's going to come get the most valuable thing this earth has. And that's the presence of the people of God. And Jesus said, when I make up my jewels, they shall be mine. They shall be mine for they are worthy. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us today to examine these words, these eternal words inscribed upon your book of life. I praise you, I worship you, I adore you. I give you all the thanks and all the glory. Dismiss us from this place, Lord, but not from your sight. And we'll give you praise, honor for it all. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.